0: Reflecting Our Redeemer in All of Life, Covenant, Words, and Rules is the title for this lesson, lesson 13. And we're going to be in Exodus 21 through 23, so open up your Bibles. And remember last week, Cherise helped us to glimpse a little bit more of God's purpose and plan for this new nation. Do you remember what Moses said kind of on repeat to Pharaoh? He said, let my people go that they may... Serve me that they may worship me, right? So, what God did then is He was starting to reveal what is this going to look like? He gave them new identity that they would be serving as priests to win the nations to Him. And He gave them His moral law, the Ten Commandments, both that were Godward and otherward, right? They would reflect His holiness. And their obedience would be a loving response to God's saving grace and his redemption in their lives. And now, in these chapters, he's gonna tell them how to apply those 10 Commandments in real life situations. So in your homework this week, you grappled with some really obscure laws and rules, many of which sounded a little strange, right? You might have been scratching your head when you read the sections on the goring of the oxen or rescuing your enemy's donkeys or five-fold restitution or roadkill and the festival in the month of Abib, we might be tempted just to skip over these chapters. In fact, I think in my Bible reading plans that I've done for years, I've read them, but I've never studied them up until this year in, in our study of Exodus. What we're gonna go to next here is, just to ask the question, well, doesn't the New Testament say some pretty strong things about the law? And it does, right? Galatians 3:11 says no one is justified before God by the law. And then in verse 13 of Galatians 3, Christ redeemed us from the law's curse. And in Romans we read that we have died to the law through the body of Christ. And what God has done or God has done with the law weakened by the flesh could not do. And that we're not under law, but we're under grace. The power of sin is the law. So how should we as believers think about the law? And I listed six things for you. Number one, the law can't save us or transform us. It can give us direction, but it can't produce obedience and righteousness in us. And number two, these case laws that we see here are specific applications of the 10 Commandments, which were more universal principles. And number three, we need to remember that God was taking a newborn nation for his very own precious people, and they were to be unique from all the other pagan nations around them. And many of these practices would distinguish them from the pagan nations in the, in the promised land where they were heading. Number four, Jesus affirms in two of the gospels the death penalty still for those who revile father or mother. And then number five. With your pen, put a star by this one, because if you take away nothing else from this morning, just remember that these case laws reveal God's heart. They reveal God's character. So I hope you saw more of God this week as you studied. By our obedience, we also reflect God's character to the world around us. And then number six, these case laws point to Jesus. Do you remember what he said on the road to Emmaus? He said all of the law, even Exodus 21 through 23, point to him, right? So we're going to go through th- uh, six sections this morning, three key words, and two things to remember. The three key words are, re- one, the first one is respect. Many of these laws are about respecting, whether it's about life, people, property, respecting others. The other key word is to reflect. We are to reflect God's heart that we see in these chapters. And then we're to remember two things, all right? Remember who you were, that you were slaves, that you were sojourners. But also remember whose you are. Who do you belong to? You're redeemed by the Lord. You are his people. And so we are to be like him, to obey and be holy because He is holy. We are to reflect our Redeemer in all of life. So the regulations and the principles in these chapters reflect our Redeemer. They point to Jesus. So these laws impacted the way that they lived, not just while they were at the foot of Mount Sinai where they got these laws, while they were trembling, remember, at his holiness and his majesty, but later when they got to the promised land where they encountered real life problems, pain, injustice, their neighbor failing to keep a promise or spreading lies, and so it would be impossible for God to lay out specific laws for every particular situation, but these are some basic legal principles that they were to follow as people of God. So the outline is on your handout, and for each section, we're gonna ask those two questions. We're gonna ask, remember who you were and whose you are. Now, respect for human life is the first broad principle that we find in these covenant rules. And it's clear that God values life. He condemns murder. But we see a broader principle here of respecting the dignity and the welfare of others. So, respect for human life is this first section. We might start with what might be one of the hardest sections, and I'm going to spend most of our time this morning in this section. You might find it difficult that slavery was not prohibited in the Old Testament, that it was an assumption that it would happen. So it's important for us to make some initial observations and definitions before we tackle these verses. So slavery here in this section is not referring to the transatlantic slave trade where people were brutally kidnapped from their homes by traders, crammed into ships, and sold into a foreign land to work for the rest of their lives. We think about that despicable, evil, race-based chattel slavery that was so prevalent in the early years of America up until the Civil War, and we lament that terrible chapter of our history. And as I wrote in your workbook, this was not slavery as our modern American minds think of it, which is expressly forbidden in Exodus 21:16. Any kind of human stealing or turning people into slaves against their will violates the Eighth Commandment and was punishable by death penalty for both the seller and the buyer. And I just can't imagine the theological gymnastics that had to take place for someone to be a supporter of slavery. It was a flagrant violation of Exodus twenty-one sixteen. Slavery is neither commanded nor prohibited in the Bible, but it recognizes that it exists and it lays out these laws to constrain it. One commentator put it this way, we might have expected God to abolish slavery altogether. What he did instead was to allow for certain forms of servitude with safeguards to protect the welfare and dignity of those who served. This is consistent with what the Bible teaches elsewhere. Without ever defending the practice of slavery, the Bible assumes that some form of servitude will continue, yet it transforms the institution by carefully regulating the relationship between master and slave in ways that eliminate abuse and ultimately cause slavery, at least how we know it, to disappear. So slavery was common and it was cruel in the surrounding cultures. And in these chapters, we see that God's people are to be different. Israel had just come out of slavery, and God did not deliver them in order for them to oppress others. Slavery rarely, if ever, had anything to do with race or ethnicity. The color of one's skin was irrelevant when it came to the issue of slavery in the Bible. Slavery was voluntary, It was temporary. You could sell yourself as a slave as a last resort if you were over your head in debt. It was kind of like a six year contract or even going into the military where you got room and board and then in the seventh year, you went free. Lifetime service was a choice of the slave. It was not the choice of the master. Additionally, when slaves went free in that seventh year, they were not sent away empty-handed, according to Deuteronomy 15. Instead, their masters were required to supply them with everything they needed to make a fresh new start in life. You shall This is what it says. You shall furnish him liberally out of your flock, out of your threshing floor, and out of your winepress. As the Lord your God has blessed you, you shall give to him. And why should they do that? you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you. Now, we also read here that parents could sell their children, and that sounds terrible to us, doesn't it? But the motive was for the child to become a part of another family where they would have more opportunities. It was nearly always local, either domestic or farm worker, and it was considered a second chance at life for someone who was destitute. It could also be a penalty for theft. So this section of Exodus is really about the when and how of freedom for slaves. So these case laws are aimed at the situations that come like, well, what if this or when this happens or whoever does this? It's also interesting to note that these case laws about slavery come at the beginning of these chapters, just like in the preface to the Ten Commandments, God began that way. He said, remember that I delivered you from slavery. So these are the rules that you're to follow regarding slavery. They were to remember who they were, right? They were to remember that they'd been slaves and not to treat their fellow Hebrews in a way that that was not with dignity, right? They were to treat them with respect. God is saying, now that you're free, how in the world could you treat one another the way Pharaoh treated you? You know, it's like, come on, Hebrews, don't do that, right? We see another beautiful truth here in verses five and six of chapter 21. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free. Then his master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost. And his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall be his slave forever. The key word here you saw in your lesson is love, right? I love my master. I am going to go through a ceremony. Now the ear here is symbolic. He has to hear before he can obey. Now, this piercing ceremony was public, so the servant was committing before others to do the things that his master said, to obey him always. The doorpost was also symbolic. It showed that the servant was now essentially attached to his master's house, and the doorpost was also marked with blood, wasn't it, when it went through? So you think about the blood of the covenant. Do you remember the Passover when the blood was on the door? This was an agreement, like a covenant agreement, between master and slave. Now this form of slavery, as you saw, was completely voluntary. Anyone who saw the slave with this earring would have said, I know that he chose to stay with his master. But you might wonder, well, why? Why would someone make this choice? What could persuade a man to renounce his freedom and remain bound to his master? And the answer is love, right? The slave who had his ear pierced before everyone was saying, I love my master. I want to serve him for the rest of my life. So this kind of servitude was not a form of tyranny, but it was a voluntary act of love. And so ask yourself, do I have this kind of a relationship with Jesus? Do we love Jesus and want to serve him? Are we bound to him? We have the very best master ever, do we not? Do we have that relationship? Okay, now I want you to flip that image in your mind because we know one of the things that Jesus said was, I came not to be served, but to serve, right? So yes, he is our kind and loving master, but he came to serve. And so when I think about freeing of the slaves in their seventh year, I'm just blown away by the humility of Jesus who voluntarily took on the form of a slave for us. The ceremony points in a beautiful way to Jesus because Jesus perfectly obeyed. He heard perfectly his father's will. He obeyed perfectly. He delighted to do the father's will. And he had these open ears that Psalm 40 refers to. He came not only to have his ear pierced though, but to be nailed not to a doorpost, but to the cross where he shed his blood for us, that covenant, that new covenant blood for us. And then his side was pierced, to prove that he had actually died. Philippians 2 said he was born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So remember whose you are. If you are redeemed by the Lord, you are ransomed at a great cost and you are his people. Now, the Israelites were to be like him, just as he graciously del- delivered them from slavery in Egypt, he expected them to show the same kind of grace to others. So when a slave was set free, the master was to lavish him with gifts, just like the Israelites got when they left Egypt. Do you remember how their neighbors gave them things, and they you know they plundered the Egyptians, so too would we are in Christ he will transform our hearts. And if our sinful hearts are not transformed by Jesus, then they will find other ways to oppress people, right? Whether or not there's actual slavery, this kind of oppression exists today. Think about how much is going on in the world with sex trafficking and this that kind of slavery that's going on all over, right? But the opposite is also amazing. If Jesus rules in our hearts, if He is our master, then our relationships will be transformed. We will have just and loving and harmonious relationships with each other, no matter what system we live in. The Bible tells us, above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. In Colossians 3, we studied this a couple years ago, Paul doesn't say that he condones the institution of slavery but he tells both masters and slaves to relate to each other, both of them in light of the fact that they're responsible to the same ultimate master, that is Jesus. And in Philemon, Paul writes to a master pleading with him to release his brother in the Lord. In Romans, it's slavery to sin that is highlighted, with Jesus setting us free in order to serve him and not serve sin. Our core problems and needs are still not political, social, or economic, but our needs are spiritual. The root issue is a sinful heart, the old self, which will pervert even the best of systems. Now, a brief note on chapter 21, verses 7 through 11, because my heart was jarred a little bit when I read this. When a man sells his daughter as a slave she shall not go out as the male slaves do. So what is going on there? Our contemporary culture bristles, right, at a section like this, accusing the Bible of having a negative view of women. And perhaps you wonder, how can I respond to the critics rather than just kind of be embarrassed and slink away and hope that that's really not what was meant by this passage, well when we come to a passage that is confusing and challenging to understand, just doesn't fit with our preconceived ideas, we need to step back and we need to examine our hearts, you know and ask, Lord, am I harboring sin in my heart? Do I have resentment in my heart for how God has made me? What attitudes are influenced by just the air of our culture that we breathe in what which of my attitudes are distorted by? Sin? You know, do we truly want God to transform our thoughts and our attitudes? We can't let our first thought be, God must have been wrong here. Okay, we can't let that be our first thought. The first thing to remember is God's character, God's heart. Remember his goodness. God is always just, always loving, and righteous, and good, and kind. And the list can go on. So we humbly come and we say, Lord, I trust you and your word, so help me understand how this can fit with your character. So remember the truth that God our Father loves all of his children, including his daughters. And remember that God's word provides the protection that we need to flourish as his daughters. This section is just a beautiful picture of salvation, if you look at it. A daughter who had been sold into slavery could be redeemed. Did you notice that? And then return home. Does that sound familiar to you? Remember who you were. We were born as slaves to sin and had a very cruel master. But when Jesus went to the cross, he redeemed us. He bought us back and now we're to, we're free to go home to god and now look at verse 21 or chapter 21 verse 9 if he designates her for his son he shall deal with her as a daughter so a girl from a destitute family with no prospects could gain her freedom by marrying her master's son does that sound familiar remember whose you are. We were all alone. We had no prospects. We were without hope. But as believers, we are engaged to marry God's one and only son. We are the bride of Christ, the master's son. That's a beautiful biblical picture. So already, God was laying out a picture for us to point to Jesus. The Heidelberg Catechism states it this way. What is your only comfort in life and death? that I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. And if the Son has set you free, you are free indeed. Right, that's John 8. All right, so let's move on to the section about respect for people. This is a section on personal injuries. This includes a spectrum from the most serious crimes, murder, to less serious crimes involving property. So an underlying principle in this section is that the punishment should fit the crime. So what is a capital crime? A capital crime is a crime in which the sentence includes the possibility of the death penalty. And in verses 12 through 17, we have three such crimes, each of which is based on one of the Ten Commandments. This section also has a beautiful gospel picture. Look at verse 13. It speaks about a place to flee, a place to await trial. And so when the people of Israel came to the promised land, God had told them to designate places that were called cities of refuge, where the defendant could run and be safe until a verdict was reached. And so these cities of refuge expressed the value of human life and God's mercy and grace to those who deserve death. Psalm 46 1 says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Does that sound familiar? Remember who you were. We deserve death for the sinful life that we lived before we came to Christ. Sin is high treason against God. Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death. But then remember whose you are. Jesus took the penalty for our sin at the cross. Jesus became the place that we run to for protection. He is our refuge. He is our protection from the consequences of sin. And so when we are in Christ, he is our life, he is our pardon, we are secure in him. Jesus is our sanctuary, he is the place of our asylum, he is where we find forgiveness. All right, in verses 20 and 21, we see a law addressing physical abuse of slaves. Now this law protected the rights of those who, by their very status, were more easily exploited, like a slave. But even they had certain legal protections and rights that were afforded to them. Every person's dignity must be protected. If the slave died from punishment, the man was guilty of murder and he got the death penalty. That's what he shall be avenged means. This was radical protection for slaves. The biblical principle of the sanctity of life is highlighted here, that every person is made in the image of God. People matter to God. Now, I was a bit puzzled by the phrase, if the slave survives a day or two, he is not to be avenged, for the slave is his money. Any of you puzzled by that one? Yeah. Well, if the slave lived, the master was not sentenced to death okay that was not the fine that he paid per se and the the modern day idiom that we might use here is that he shot himself in the foot okay if a master abused a slave to the point of him you know being out of commission for a day or two it was, you know, that, that was no benefit to the master at all. It was really in his best interest to provide for his slave and help him heal and resume work. It was loss of time and work. And so that's how the, you know, how we can understand that, that section a little bit more. Now, in verses 22 through 25, there's a section on pregnant women and their children. Note here that this law considers both the woman and the baby, both are treated as persons here, eye for eye, life for life. Pregnant women and the children they carry should be given special protection, and it's clear from this text that an unborn baby is a person deserving protection, that abortion is murder, and the penalty is life for life. When done intentionally, killing unborn babies brings the punishment of God. Amos 113 is clear on that as well. Phil Riken, a commentator, wrote this. He said, What these laws show is that people who don't count to us still count to God. The innocent bystander who was struck with a violent blow, the child ripped from his mother's womb, the slave beaten by his master, all of these people deserve special care. The fetus is not a massive tissue. The slave is not a piece of property. We are all made in the image of God. And since we all need protection, we all need to protect one another. And whenever anyone is harmed, justice should be done. Now, the Latin phrase for this law of retaliation is called lex talionis. It sounds harsh, but actually the purpose was to restrict the nature of the retaliation. That is to stop excessive punishment. The principle is kind of given like sentencing guidelines meant for judges who are ruling on a case. So other than the death penalty, it was not necessarily carried out literally, as you can see in verses 18 and 19, where it's not wound for wound. The goal was justice. So an injured person would be reimbursed for medical expenses and lost work time rather than inflicting the same kind of wound on the guilty. So you might wonder, Jesus said something about this law, didn't he? Did Jesus overturn this law? No, but people were abusing this principle. Because remember, the intent was not cruelty. It's not, if somebody beats me up, then I'm going to go beat him up. Remember the example of the slave with the injured eye? What would happen to that slave if their eye was injured? They were set free, right? In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus used this principle to challenge us to show mercy and grace and generosity our Redeemer in all of life. And this, too, is a beautiful picture of our salvation. At the cross, Jesus extended mercy in the midst of the ultimate injustice. First Peter 2.23 tells us, When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Does that sound familiar? Remember who you were. We were the ones who were reviling, hurling insults. We deserved retaliation, but we received mercy. He overcomes our reviling hearts, our sin and our evil with his good. He doesn't give us what we deserve, but he pours out compassion and mercy on us. Remember whose you are. We are recipients of God's mercy, and we should reflect Him because we belong to Him. Ephesians 4 tells us to be kind to one another, tender hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. All right, on to the next section here. Section 2 Respect for Personal Property and Restitution. In this section, again, we see the the principle of the punishment should fit the crime. In other cultures, a thief might have paid with his life, or in some cultures even now, a thief will pay with getting his hand chopped off, right? Well, what, what God was saying here is that he values life, even the life of the thief. So we see two kinds of punishment here for theft, restitution and slavery. That might seem harsh, But remember, it was temporary, it was not lifelong, and so by either directly repaying, or by working to repay, the offender then had his value as a person affirmed. Unlike today, there was no prisons, so he wasn't confined with thousands of other prisoners, but he had to work to pay back what he owed. In our justice system for theft, Usually it involves jail time, but it doesn't always mandate restitution. A thief might go to jail, but they don't always have to pay what they owe. But these laws here required direct restitution to the victim, unlike in our day when a fine might be paid to the government instead of to the victim. Now this section is also a beautiful gospel picture. Do you remember the story of Zacchaeus? how he meets Jesus and his heart is transformed. He said, behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. That's above and beyond the required restitution. Does that sound familiar? Remember who you were. We were sinners. We were stealing from God's glory. We are thieves like Zacchaeus. And Exodus 22, three says, If he has nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. We too deserve punishment, and we have no means to pay our fine. But remember whose you are. Jesus gave everything, everything to pay the debt that we could not pay. He gave his life for us. We reflect our Redeemer and the new heart that he's given us when we serve sacrificially and are willing to make restitution and here we get to the heart of our uh, of our section here reflecting our redeemer's heart respect for people is based on god's character god's heart god is compassionate so we should be compassionate god is holy and we're his people so we should be holy god has mercy on us therefore we should have mercy on others So remember who you were. This in verse 21 of chapter 22 here is a guiding principle for all of these laws. You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. Now, twice in this section, The Lord says that He will hear the cries of His people who were being mistreated. They needed to remember, and we need to remember how God heard their cries for help. Do you remember back in Exodus 2? How God heard, He saw, He knew, He remembered His covenant. All right? So God hears us when we are oppressed as well. God has rescued us out of our sojourn too. Twice God says that he hears the oppressed and the mistreated, right? So if we are God's people and we love him, we will not want to hurt others. No, we will remember how God heard our cries when we were oppressed. And when we lend money to a brother or sister in Christ who is poor, we should not demand interest, this says. Do you see Jesus here in this? Jesus, he left the riches of heaven and he became poor so through... Through his poverty, we could have his riches, right? And we are to reflect him to the world around us. All right, section four. We need to have a respect for the truth and integrity. In this section, we see that just laws reflect God's perfect justice. This section details the requirements for a fair judicial system. The number one thing is just laws. God is giving them just laws here. Not all of our laws are just, right? But God's laws are just. Honest judges is the second thing. And God says here even just laws can be misinterpreted by a partial judge or an unjust judge. And the third component is faithful witnesses. Lying witnesses are wicked and malicious according to this text. And God goes on here in this section to say that none of these components, the laws, the honest judges, faithful witnesses should be influenced by numbers, okay, in verse 2, like if many people believe this, you don't be influenced by it, or in verse 3 and 6, money shouldn't influence it, verse 4 and 5, personal emotions shouldn't come in, and verse 9, your social status is not a part, okay, we should be people of impartiality, not showing favoritism. Do you see a beautiful gospel picture here in this section? Remember who you were. Read Exodus 23 7. What did God clearly tell them here in this verse? I will not acquit the wicked. Who's the wicked? That's us. All right? We're the guilty ones who deserve punishment. And when it comes to, to, we deserve the punishment. We are sinners, dead in our trespasses and sin. But God, in His grace, Justifies the ungodly. Romans 4, 5 says, And to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. How, how can he do this? Because Jesus took the penalty for our sins at the cross. God is just and the justifier. Does that sound familiar? Remember whose you are. Romans 5, 6 through 11 is so beautiful. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So we are justified, reconciled, saved people who should reflect the justice of God in all of our actions. Number five, remember and rest. Remember God's provision, rest from work, and remember God's mercy, that is to worship God because he's given us the ultimate rest, spiritual rest. So this section beautifully ties together both work and worship. And this is a section where the feasts and the festivals are mentioned. And they're they are they're all related to the agricultural year And they're in sevens, you notice that. The seventh day was a Sabbath, right? The seventh year was a sabbatical year where they would have more rest and restoration. The Feast of Unleavened Bread was celebrated for seven days after Passover. The seventh month opened with the Feast of Trumpets and included the Day of Atonement, that's Yom Kippur, and the Feast of Tabernacles or or the Feast of Booths that we talked about last week or two weeks ago. So remember that Passover is a beautiful picture of our salvation, it so clearly points to Jesus, our Passover lamb, who died in our place. And the Feast of Fruits pointed to the resurrection of Jesus, and remember the Feast of Tabernacles didn't just look backwards at how God provided for them in the wilderness, but it looked forward to the fact that we also get living water, we also get rest, Jesus is also the light of the world, and he's coming again, and his rule and reign will be forever. So remember who you were. You were slaves to sin. You needed rescue and redemption by the blood of the Lamb, Jesus. So remember whose you are. He is our Redeemer. He's given us living water. He's given us rest. And the Feast of Unleavened Bread, Harvest, and Ingathering, remind us that in Jesus' we have a continual feast. And where are we headed ultimately? Revelation tells us we're headed to the wedding feast of the Lamb. So these feasts have a bigger, um, they're pointing to something bigger. All right, the last section here. Looking ahead to the promised land, the blessings of obedience. This section opens with verse 20 that says, Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and bring you to the place that I have prepared, Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him for he will not pardon your transgression for my name is in him. So remember who you were. We were enslaved in sin. The Lord redeemed us, brought us back and he is leading us. He is guiding us through our life's wilderness and he did this so that we could worship him. He goes before us defending and defeating our enemies. Did you notice in verse 20 that it says that God is preparing a place for them? That's the promised land, right? But does that sound familiar to you? Remember whose you are. Jesus has gone to prepare a place for us. That's John 14. And just like here in Exodus, Jesus is driving out sin in our lives, little bit by little bit, that's called sanctification. And one day, we will be with him in that glorious place that he is preparing for us. So Jesus is our rock. He is leading us, sanctifying us through our wilderness journey. As we've seen over and over this week, these laws point to him. He is that rock of ages that we talked about a couple of weeks ago. So would you pray with me as we close? O Jesus, you are that rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be of sin the double cure. Save from wrath and make me pure. Not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save, and thou alone. So nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul, I, to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I, or I die. So Lord, I pray that you would help us to remember who we were before you saved us and whose we are now. And would you help us to reflect our Redeemer in all of our life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.